Well, let's pray together as the kids are coming back in. Father, we asked in the beginning that you would send your spirit so that this next week and this next year could be transformed. And Lord, one of the ways that you do that, in fact, the main way that we believe you do that is by opening our eyes to understand your word. We ask that you'd send your spirit. We're grateful that we're aware of your presence because he is at work. And we ask now, Spirit, that you would open our eyes that we could see wondrous things in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm glad that the kids came back in because my opening illustration wasn't going to make any sense unless they were here. So... First, kids, great job. We were so glad that you guys blessed us with that. Well done. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, too, to the kids who have helped with our Advent candle readings, the catechisms that we've had in a question and answer format. Those have been really meaningful uh, to me this year, so even though I would write them generally. And then hearing them read is just amazing to hear the truth of the fact that a world desiring hope and joy and peace and love is desperate for Jesus. Deeply desperate for Jesus. We hear echoes, we see echoes of the the world's desire to know God in all the half-baked solutions that they come up with the problems we all experience. And it's interesting that way, isn't it? That the world longs for something it can't provide. The world longs and thirsts for something that, to use the words of an old prophet, they search out and dig up little wells for themselves that are cracked. And they ignore the fact that all of this is available like a flowing spring from God. I want to ask a question, and this is going to be a question maybe for kids, but maybe the adults will need to help. I'm going to tell you a story. It's going to sound like a movie, and you're going to tell me what movie comes to mind, okay? There is a young person. This young person feels misunderstood, but they have special powers. They don't know about these powers in the beginning, And then by the time the movie is done, that young person with their special powers has defeated a great darkness. What movie was I talking about? What's that? Frodo. Frodo. Oh, very good. Bill, you decided to go somewhere with this that he just went there all of a sudden, didn't you? Well, kids of all ages are welcome to participate in this part of the thing. The Lord of the Rings has elements of that story, doesn't it? What other story did that sound like? That's okay. We usually... We can be heroes. Why not? I forget that name too. And even if you... Is that the name? No clue? Oh, very good. All right. Well, we have a recommendation for a movie from Netflix. What else did that sound like? Any other movies that that brought to mind? That sounded like a little bit of a Harry Potter kind of theme, didn't it? What else did it sound like? All right, it sounded a little like Frozen. It sounds like a lot of them. I'm amazed that Star Wars didn't come out of this side over here. It's interesting that way, isn't it? 
Good stories have similar themes, and when you hear those themes show up in different ways, sometimes people could say, you know, Star Wars and Harry Potter and apparently this thing on Netflix, they're all just basically the same movie because they reach and they touch something, and it's in a similar way that you might have been asking yourself, why did we just hear the story of Abraham and Isaac on Christmas? Here's what I want us to do. I want us to reread that story that Leslie just read for us. And I want us to think about how it relates to Christmas. And we're going to ask some questions at the end. Well, I'll ask some questions at the end. And maybe you'll help me answer those questions in terms of whether there are any parallels that this old story echoes in Christmas. But first... It is amazing, like I said about the half-baked answers the world gives, it is amazing how much popularity and shallowness Christmas has right now, isn't it? You hear a lot of songs talking about Christmas. We know movies talking about the meaning of Christmas. And I just, I just have a couple, you know, little lines here that could remind us. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go, right? What are the things that are making it feel like Christmas is actually coming? Well, in the song, right? It has to do with wintry scenes and all that kind of stuff. And stuff is happening at the 5 and 10, like we know what a 5 and 10 is anymore, <laughs> Do they know it's Christmas time at all? What is it that, I think that was in the 80s? Was that when that Live Aid was, uh, do they know it's Christmas? It's a terrible song, isn't it? If you really think about it, one, it basically says, hey, Americans and everybody in the West, isn't it great you don't have a plight as bad as everybody else in the world? Which is sort of an odd thing to be rubbing in in a song. But they keep asking the, the question, do they know that it's Christmas time? Do they know that it's Christmas time? Or if you just get down to one of my favorites, wherever we feel love, it feels like Christmas. Yeah, that's from the Muppet Christmas Carol, which I mentioned last week. Wherever we feel love, it feels like Christmas. There it is. Now I'm just bringing it back to you. Or you wanted to move out of, you know, songs and things like that. If we just come all the way back to the classic himself, Ebenezer Scrooge at the end says, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. Which is great, right? We've got all these songs about Christmas. We've got Scrooge saying, I miss the meaning of Christmas. I'll try to honor Christmas. I'll remember the past and the present and the future of Christmas. And you're asking yourself, what is Christmas, right? It's, it's the movie from, the, 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 it's Charlie Brown's plight. Can't somebody tell me what Christmas is all about? We're going to read Genesis 22 again to get one of those old echoes but not just like any story that's been made up. This, like Christmas, really happened. So let's read it again. And then let's just ask ourselves if there are any echoes that we can think of. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, 
Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, that in some ways may sound a little bit grotesque because in a lot of ways it is grotesque. In fact, if we were to say that the Christmas story ought to be really well, you know, introduced by the concept of burning a child alive, you would ask, why did you pick this text for when all the kids are in? But I, I don't think it's new. We talk to our kids about this a lot whenever they're back in Sunday school. I'm sure parents, you've talked a lot about the fact that in the Old Testament, there was a concept. The concept was called sacrifice. And a sacrifice is an odd thing because a sacrifice deals with this question. If God made the earth good and we look around the earth today and we see a lot of stuff that you would call not good, how is God going to get rid of all of what is not good so we can make it good again? Basic question, right? And in fact, most of the time, when we think about things that are not good, if I asked you, think about something in the world that is not good right now, you're probably thinking of something that somebody else has done. Maybe that another country is doing. Maybe there are problems that exist outside of us. But if we're honest, if we had to say, God, why won't you get rid of all that's not good in the world? What would be the immediate problem everybody answering that or asking that question would have to face. You're not good. And so if I say to God, God, I want you to get rid of everything in this world right now that's not good, you know what happens? Poof, your preacher just disappears. And all of us just disappear. Because the basic problem that the, that the Bible is trying to, to out, uh, lay out for us is basically this. How is God going to get rid of what's not good while keeping the people he loves around? How will God bring life in the midst of darkness or in the midst of death? How will he bring light to the darkness? How will he bring holiness to that which is sinful? How will he bring good back to bad? The answer is in sacrifice. Because we read this in the Old Testament, the life is in the blood for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, for every not good thing that was ever done in the Old Testament, the solution to being able to pay that off was that another animal would die and its blood being spilled would create a safe space that people who weren't good could exist in. Because something else had died so that people didn't have to. Because death was what God said was going to happen from sin existing in the world from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, God said, don't eat of this or you will die. And though he was right, he was also merciful. Death began, death comes to everything, and yet other things could die so that people didn't have to. And so God tells Abraham, I want you to come, I want you to bring your son, your only son, 
whom you love, and I'm going to have you offer a sacrifice. This probably isn't the first time something like this has happened. We didn't read about it before this, but this was pretty normal for Abraham. And so, verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, it's interesting that Abraham has heard what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to go and make a sacrifice. That would be normal, except for there is one thing missing. And Isaac just picked up on the fact that one thing is missing. There's a knife to kill something. There's wood to burn something. But there's no something. We don't have a sacrifice that should die. What are we going to do? Now, if you're me and you're reading this story, you probably need to read it a couple times just so that it doesn't feel so familiar. Because it's amazing. You know how the story is going to end, so it's really easy to rush past this moment. Let's just pretend you're Abraham for a minute. Your little boy, your only boy, whom you love, is looking at you asking with his tender voice, coming from his throat what's going to die we know something needs to die dad what's going to die this is an ingenious answer by Abraham it may feel even like a political answer by Abraham you know what I mean by a political answer an answer that doesn't really answer, it's sort of a truthful answer, but it doesn't really pin down the problem or the answer or the solution or the fact that you're terrified of what you actually have to say and do. If I'm Abraham right now, I am scared to death. I've been told what I need to do. This doesn't make sense with the God that I know, but I clearly need to obey him. And yet, Abraham seems to trust something good is going to happen. Either that or he was lying to the young men, too, when he told them, you stay here with the donkeys, we're going to go, and we'll come back. I don't know how that works out. But it seems as though it's okay. There we go. Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Here's his answer. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there 
and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Isn't that a frustrating way to tell that story? What questions come to mind? Listen, do it again. So they were both of them there together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. What questions come to mind for you when you're reading that? Yeah, what's Isaac doing, right? Is Isaac confused? Is he struggling to get away? What other questions come to mind? What's Abraham thinking, right? Kids, you're not being very curious right now. I would think this would bother you, right? There is an adult in our story trying to kill a child. And yet the kids are like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> what is Isaac thinking? What is Abraham thinking? What if I, if I, if I came in right then and took a picture? What, what's the expression on Abraham's face? What's the expression on Isaac's face? If, if we paused it and we just said, what's going to happen next? You know, but they don't know. I wish we had more details. And yet, this is the way Moses is telling us the story. This is what the Spirit has preserved for us. So that we feel this. Hopefully, we feel this. Because Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. And bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Do you hear any echoes? So far in our story, do you hear any echoes that would bring out some parallels to Christmas? I, I think they're there. I hear kind of a Star Wars, Harry Potter thing kind of happening in my, I hear similarities in my head. Let me, let me read one that would be a little bit from a different spot. This is Isaiah talking about not Isaac or Abraham, but another one. He said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. When Charles Spurgeon was preaching on this text, at one point in the middle of it, he paused apparently and he, he broke down. And he said, brethren, if you will, let me pause in the midst of my preaching. I am abashed in the presence of such wondrous love. I cannot understand you, O great God. I know that you are not a God of stone, passionless and unmoved. You are God and therefore we cannot conceive you. But yet, do we err then if we think of you as yearning over your well-beloved when he was given up to the pangs of death? Surely it was a costly sacrifice which you did make, costly even for you. I appreciate the emotion 
communicated in that quote. Because it tells me that as Spurgeon is preaching a passage that I'm sure he preached many times before, and as he's thinking through something that he had, he had walked through many times before, he was asking the same kind of questions we're asking, not just what was Isaac thinking or what was Abraham thinking, but if this is a story that's an echo of a greater story, what is God the Father thinking? What is he thinking as his glorious son comes down to earth? is born covered in water and blood. As he's wrapped in cloths there from his first moments. What is God, the omniscient one, and not the passionless one? What is God feeling for his infant son at that moment? When something is, it's hard to say, Absent from heaven and more present on earth? This is, this is a unique moment. Not just for the shepherds because of what they encountered. Or for Mary and Joseph because of what they encountered. This is a unique moment for God. This moment where he's had perfect fellowship with his son. And now because of the way his son has bound himself to a human. His son can't speak? His son is helpless in the arms of a human that, that God has created, a human that will die and turn back to dust again. And yet he's placed his son into their care, knowing ultimately what people will do to him. Micah says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Shall I give my firstborn? For my transgressions. Coming back to Abraham. He's got to be asking the question. Whose fault is this? What great sin did I commit. That God would be asking me to do this thing. He's holding a knife. And if we had a, a video of it. Is his hand trembling? Is it steadfast? Is it moving? What is happening in the moment? We don't know. But the number of thoughts that have to be going through Abraham's head at this moment. The number of questions that have to be in Isaac's eyes at this moment are interrupted. When, verse 11, we read, The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Merry Christmas. 
Do you hear the echoes? This isn't just a tale. This isn't something that Moses invented under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order to make us long for it to be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. This is an event that really happened. This is a moment in the life of a man named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, in the life of his son. This is a real deed. There were two actual servants who came with him, and Isaac and Abraham returned back to them. And then they went back, and boy, did they have a story to tell to Rebecca. Or not to Rebecca, if she went around yet, to Sarah. But in the telling of this, there are echoes, aren't there? Let me give you the first one, and then we'll talk and see if we can pick up on any of the others. The first one is that on the mount, that from that day on was called God will provide. Later on, a temple would be built. And later on in that same location, another would die. Most scholars think that Mount Moriah is the same mountain of Jerusalem and Calvary, the same location where in the very beginning something died for something. The first great picture of substitution that we have takes place here and is fulfilled there. Pretty cool parallel, isn't it? What are some other parallels? What are some other echoes of this story, themes and things that kind of hit on? We've sort of alluded to them, but let's, let's say them directly. What are some things that you see in this story that remind you of the story of Jesus? God shows up and gives a message to somebody of something that needs to happen. That sounds a little Christmassy, doesn't it? What else? Three days echoes something that will be important in Jesus' life. Isaac walks up and carries the wood on which he would be bound. We have one son loved by a father. Sin had required a sacrifice, right? That one's pretty much on the nose. What else? Substitution is a big deal. We have one thing that dies so that Isaac can live. The sacrifice was not of the son, and this is where the parallels start breaking down, don't they? See, in this story, the beloved son lives. In Christmas, the baby born is destined to die. In this son, the love of the father doesn't have to be touched by grief. But in the story that Christmas leads to, the father's son is sacrificed for us. Guys, as we make our way from church home, as you guys go back and do what you do on Christmas Eve, and if you return back here tonight for our 5 o'clock service and join us for Christmas Eve, at different points, 
Maybe let this story percolate up again in your conversation. What are some other things that it reminded you of? Because here's the neat thing about this one story. It's not the only one like this in the Bible. Over and over and over. We understand what Jesus told the two men that he met after he had died and after he had risen again. That everything in the Old Testament points to him. Or as one author has said, everything whispers his name. And we see that here. So a little fill in the blank. If you've been following along in your notes, if you've been coloring, doing the crossword puzzle, or anything along those lines, you see that we have a few blanks down there at the bottom. And we can fill those in as the worship team returns. Huh? It says, for God so blank that he blank his only son, so that whoever blank in him should not blank, but have everlasting life. God so loved. That's our first blank. God so loved, and there's a missing blank apparently there, the world, that he gave his only son. So that whoever believes in him shouldn't die, should not perish, but ever everlasting life. There'll be a few gifts you get over Christmas that'll probably be obligatory. You sort of have to give gifts to some people. You might get a few of those. But I'm almost positive that every gift you get tomorrow is going to be given to you because the person giving it to you loves you. And that's what we learn from this great story here. That God's love for you is so great that the gift he gave to you was in his son. Genesis 22 is a pretty simple story and Christmas itself is a pretty simple story. But everybody out there is telling you about the meaning of Christmas and here's the good news. They got it wrong. God's love for you is what it's about. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love for us. We're grateful that we can take a simple story Listening to it again, we can recognize that because of your great love for us, we are not consumed. Because of your great love for us, you sent Jesus as our sacrifice and as our substitute. This Christmas, may we speak of him and be more grateful for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing together.